Hey y'all, I'm Benz and I am a gratefully recovering alcoholic. Boy, it's great to be here. This is a good house. I'm in show business. I know what a good house is. You walk in. <laughs> the feeling is kind of like we all know each other. We already know each other because of the shared disease that we have and the shared experience that we have. And it's like that all over the world in different languages and different places. And, uh, we know we, we, we shared something. It's sort of like we've been through a, a terrible uh, uh, storm or bad war, something like that. We're sort of like the people who washed up on the beach after the shipwreck, and that's a, that real good feeling you have that you survived it. But we know something about each other that's hard to explain to, to people who don't share our disease. And I was thinking, well, it's coming in. It's, it's, it is. It's, a, it's an overused phrase, perhaps. Well, we are family. Uh, we're close as we can be because of this disease has brought us to a common experience. And I said, well, it would be like home, except at home there was all this fighting and cussing and all this stuff. And probably a little bit of cussing around here, but we're happy. This is a happy family. This is a very happy family here. And it's, it's like that all over the world. Because a couple of guys met in a, in a, in a gatehouse in Akron, Ohio in 1935. They just got to talking to each other. And uh, because Bill Wilson, Bill W., felt like he had to talk to somebody about this disease and that if he could find somebody who could share that, perhaps they could help each other. And so he met Dr. Bob said, well, I was going to go over there and listen to this crank for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes and get out of there. And Dr. Bob said they stayed all night and they could not stop talking. And from those, those two men sharing their common experience, how long has it been? Almost 80 years. It'll be 80 years next year. 80 years from two people to not just tens of millions of people all over the world who have found sobriety and health because of this program, but people who have, who have created entirely new lives and brought joy to generations of their family who, who have, whose own lives have been saved and who have been the highest thing that you can ever do for anybody is to help someone else save their own life. And we do that by walk, just by walking in here. Now, like I say, I know from audiences, I know from rooms, and there's a feeling in this room of joy and spirit and fellowship and happiness that can't be measured. But we know what it is because we have been on the other side of this deal. I go to a lot of meetings, and uh, <clears throat> so often I've heard it said, you know, well, my father was an alcoholic, or my mother was an alcoholic, and we come to find out that this is a genetic disease. For many of us, there's a genetic predisposition in families, and uh, that certainly was true in my family, on both sides of my family. My father... Uh, was a weekend drinker. Somehow or another, he could, he could, he could you know, uh, tight knuckle it all week long until Friday afternoon when that whistle blew, and from then until Monday morning, he was drunk. Not just drinking, but drunk. 
worked on a railroad, and we grew up in a railroad house, <coughs> what they call a section house. On a railroad, they're divided into sections. So you have section foreman, section hands. And he was a section foreman, and had a section gang, and we lived in what was called a section house, which is an old railroad shack there by the, by the railroad tracks. It didn't have electricity or plumbing or, or telephone. It had no indoor plumbing. It had outdoor plumbing, you know. <laughs> I look back at people now, and that, this is what, you know, I'm, I'll be 73 this year, so what not? I mean, I'm talking about in the 40s and 50s in the United States of America, but that was our experience, and, and I think now it's such a positive experience because we didn't have, we didn't miss what we didn't have and got used to those conditions. And then when we did get it, well, it's funny because we finally got electricity. I was about 10, 12 years old, and they ran a line from the railroad yard over to our section house and it was like one bowl, like kind of hanging down like this from the middle of the ceiling. And it was, we all gathered around, you know, as we <laughs> screwed somebody up on somebody's shoulder, screwing in the light, you know, 40 watt light bulb. And, and the light came on in this old place and it revealed like a hundred years of grime and dirt and dust and cobwebs. And Mama said, Turn that thing off! <laughs> Daddy did drink. He drank cheap whiskey. I mean, he got finally got a promotion. He went from Four Roses to Seagram Seven, which cost about <laughs> ten cents or more a, a, a pint, a, a fifth, something like that. And, and he wouldn't accept a promotion for a long time because if you got promoted, you had to wear a hat. You know, he wasn't going to be anything to wear. He wouldn't be caught wearing a hat. He was old school, very old fashioned. He started working for his father on the railroad when he was 13 years old. And all our people, railroad people. I've been driving spikes when he was 13 years old. So it was almost like he'd been born in rural Virginia in 1909, but it was more like he'd been born in 1809. They were just old-fashioned people. And um, I, I remember my first drink was, uh, he was on the back porch. Like I said, we didn't have any electricity but we had an ice box on the back porch of this place. Uh, some of y'all might remember how that, you put a sign, you see them in antique stores now, say 5, 10, 25, 50, or 5, 20, 10, 25, 50, 100. The, the number that it was at the top was how much ice the ice man was going to leave off with you, 100 pounds or 50 pounds. And we had an ice box on the back porch where we store that ice. And on Saturday mornings, he would always start, it's the only time I ever see, saw him drink beer, he would get a little hair of a dog. He would have this uh, bottle of, of Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. <laughs> and I guess uh, don't, don't try it in a can or something. I, uh, anyhow, that's what it said. I had this real good looking women, woman on a swing, great legs. And uh, I, was, I thought that was the most interesting bottle I had ever seen. You know, the, the vapor running down the side. It just looked so cool. And he'd take a swig of that before he started drinking the Four Roses. And he looked at me. I must have been four or five years old. I was looking at that thing. And he says, you want some? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and I think maybe now, looking back, he was maybe thinking I was going to taste that and spit it out and I would turn against liquor for my life or something. 
But he looked at me, I took a swig of that stuff, and I said, mmm, mmm, that's good. <laughs> and uh, it was another, oh, eight or ten years before I had anything else to drink, and that was when it really started for me. We all know it's pretty much the same story. One drink is too many, and a thousand isn't enough. It was like, for me, one of those kids who... Uh, I just was all bundled up inside. I couldn't express myself. I lived with fear. I was so insecure. I was afraid of everything. It seemed like, and I'd faking, you know, being a tough guy, but I was really deep inside, just really frightened and confused. But <clears throat> when me and my buddy went out and got a six-pack of country club malt lager, little things came in. I hear some, uh-huh. I heard that. That was a little eight-ounce count. And I knocked down four or five of those, and boom! Suddenly, it was like, you know, Clark Kent going in that telephone booth. Man, I, it, was, it was like Captain Marvel saying, Shazam! Suddenly, I was everything in my head that I wanted to be. I was cool, I was smart, I was tough, I was a grown-up. This is a 14, 15-year-old kid, see? And I went out, got home. We lived down on the water in Tidewater, Virginia. Had an old crabbing pier out back, and I went out there and just threw up for about a half an hour. And thinking, I can't wait till tomorrow night. And we can go back and do this again. Well, it started, I'd been a pretty good student, and nobody said anything. You know, it, it, uh, the old denial in families, because nobody could say, you know, daddy was king baby, you know, and everybody was just not say anything. Because he didn't even, he wasn't very communicative. He just got like that, you know. We, yes, sir. Whatever you want, sir. Uh, but he, uh, well, I'm going to talk about the old man. But I'll tell you this: uh, when he was, he started drinking when he was 13 years old, drinking liquor on the railroad, and he quit drinking when he was 75 years old after they'd found him in a coma, and twice the doctor told me he was dead. Call your brothers, your dad is dead. And he lived through that and got back up. He's 75 years old. He lived another six years and didn't take another drink. And uh, so it's, it's like there's always, you know, we can't judge about somebody else. That old thing about they're too far gone or it's all over for them, they're hopeless. We don't know those answers. But there was a guy that drank for whatever that is from 13 to 62 years of hard drinking. And he got sober. Uh, he found that within him, that there was a, uh, something within him. And it was, it's within all of us. I don't, uh, I'll make a long story as short as possible because of the, the part of my life where I was drinking wasn't really the interesting part to me. It's a story we all share. And we love to tell all those drinking stories about the stuff we did, how funny it is, like how I went through head first in a 1950 Plymouth and took the windshield out with my head and drove into a, a telephone pole. Well, that was really funny around high school. You know, <laughs> you hear about him. Everybody just laughed at it, busted my head all up. I ain't right yet. Can <laughs> you? Well, got another laugh, me going through that windshield. See what I mean? So, hey, look at those things. But a lot of drinking. 
and that's that's what I became. And it was my my religion, as if it were, was to be an alcoholic. Not an alcoholic, a drinker. I like my drink, you know. I can take it or leave it. How many times did we say that? I'd, I'd take it or leave it. I could. I'd take it for about three or four months and then leave it for a day or two and then go drink, you know, for another year or so, quit for three days. And from that first drink, I was hooked and uh, kept on drinking anything and everything. And I did go through a lot of car wrecks. And suddenly this meek child, this quiet little guy, had become this hell-raising, fist-fighting uh, maniac. I will tell this one story because uh, I do think it's funny looking back. It's not funny, uh, all, those, all those horrific jailings and all those fights and all those divorces and all that stuff. I got into politics and somebody said, uh, asked me, have you been married before? I said, yeah, if all my ex-wives voted for me, I'd win the landslide. <laughs> All wonderful people who just could not put up with another minute of my behavior. And I, looking back, of course, realized how absolutely correct they were. Asked me if I ever smoked any dope. Oh, well, and you know, I want to say Bill Clinton's thing. He said, I said, I'm the guy that never exhaled. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they always say, well, I experimented with it a couple of times. I said, I experimented with it once or twice. I said, once from 1956 until 1971, and the other time from 1972 to 1978, but well, once or twice. But all that stuff was in there. Me and this buddy of mine named Stan, I, I ended up incredibly, I, I was a totally feckless, worthless, lazy high school student. I was always, you know, just thinking, well, how am I going to get enough money to go out and get drunk tonight? And, and my, I had the kind of pinball brain anyway. You know, now they have a name for it, attention deficit disorder. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm glad it has a nice scientific name now because they just said, well, he's crazy as a box of rocks. <laughs> you got a brain like blue. And I couldn't focus on anything for any length of time. It's hard to be a student that way. So I kind of, kind of just sort of flunked out and finished at the bottom of the high school class. And then I had a lot of jobs working. I worked uh, at a gas station, which was to pay off later on at a garage. And I, I worked in this delivery stuff, delivering newspapers and magazines. And I worked as a house painter, and I worked as a carpenter, and I worked as a roofer, and I worked... Uh, I had a job um, making Halloween masks on this silk screen deal and selling encyclopedias. And in 1960, I was a census taker, a people counter. And then I had a job, one of my favorites, sticking sticks and popsicles at an ice cream <laughs> place. You laugh, but just think, somebody got to do that, right? <laughs> so that was one of them. And somehow, now I was working up on this roof one time on this ladder and uh, on this scaffolding and, and I was painting the side of the house and uh, the, other, the guy hadn't uh, nailed down the other end of the scaffold. So I get down to mine and the thing goes like that and I just grabbed on and this is way up, the old wooden building about three stories high. 
and I'm just up there thinking, I gotta do, I gotta come up with some other way. I gotta do so. I gotta go. I gotta go to college, get smart. Because about that time, these people I knew had gone off to college, came driving by in this convertible, going to the beach with all these pretty girls, and I'm hanging there like this. <laughs> I gotta go. I'm gonna go to college. So I got in the East East Carolina. Back then, it was called Easy TC in Greenville, North Carolina, East Carolina University. Now it was just old school back then, small school, and they didn't have SATs or didn't ask you. They had a they had an entrance exam. I was like, Joe, they only ask you one question: What's your name? <laughs> I got 50% on that one. <laughs> I did, but I got there. And the weirdest thing happened, but I did pretty good. Most of all I remember doing is drinking beer and shooting pool and chasing slow-legged women. <laughs> Un- unsuccessfully. I... But I saw this thing about uh, this little catalog about a school at, uh, at the University of North Carolina. They had this department that taught people about radio and television and movies. And I said, now that's the thing. I was interested in that. I don't know why. But now that's a great university. It still is. I mean, but all I did was I wrote them a letter about how I'd really love to become a part of what they were doing there. And on the basis of that letter, which I wish I still had, I was accepted at the University of North Carolina. So I'd gone from the bottom of high school all of a sudden in a few years, and I was working all the time, and I became an assistant golf pro. And I never played golf in my life. I just, you know, oh yeah, yeah, I do all that, you know. So I mean, anyhow, I ended up at Chapel Hill. It's a great school, and um, but it was ground zero for the 1960s. You know, everything they say about the 60s was true. Uh, as I, I, I have a dim recollection of all that stuff. <laughs> And it, it was like, you know, Burr Rabbit in a briar patch. You know, I got thrown in the briar patch, which is right where I wanted to be. I mean, because everybody else was drinking and smoking and raising hell. And, and that's, so it was just, my behavior just seemed normal for the 1960s. And I was going to tell this one story, and then I'll go on. I go, you know. But this buddy of mine, we, we were, we'd been drinking for a couple of days, and... Um, he had left his, his helmet. His, they had a helmet law in North Carolina back then of his motorcycle. We came out of his beer joint about 2 in the morning, and there's his, his bike. And he said, oh, I left my motorcycle helmet in the back of your car. And I said, well, let's just run down to the house and get it. So he gets on the motorcycle, and I get on the back of the motorcycle, and he cranks it up, and these two cops pull up. And say, and I'm not making this up. I knew the guys. The cops' names were Jones and Smith. <laughs> and Jonesy and Smitty decide that uh, they're going to bust us for being drunk and for him being on the motorcycle without a helmet. And I, we took offense at this. And uh, I mean, it, we hadn't moved, we hadn't budged, right? And uh, but anyhow, so it got into a big scuffle, and we start fighting with the cops, which is never a good idea. <laughs> Although we were winning until we, I'm not making this up. Uh, they threw Stan in the back of the car and had cuffed him and everything, and then I got into it with Smitty, and uh, 
Smitty pushed me, and I pushed him back and, and up on the car. And all of a sudden, here comes Stan, my buddy, with cuffs on, and he stole the other guy's mace and was spraying the cops with mace. <laughs> this is how drunk we were, right? So now we look up in the whole town. He's calling, calling all cars, just like in the old days. Calling all cars. We did that on Dukes of Hazard one time. Roscoe says, calling all cars. And Ian says, we only got one car, sure. <laughs> But they were all they all showed up. It's a little town. They throw us in, now they throw us in the in the clinker. And we oh you sons of bitch, you know, we you, you come back here, I'm gonna kick in and all this stuff, and we're just real badasses, right? And we get thrown in there. And those days they didn't take your belt and all that stuff into that. This was you know, just throw them in there. So we're in there, we're still cussing at them. Pretty soon we realize it's real quiet in here. Ain't nobody in here. There wasn't a soul in the police station. They had gone off, right, on some other call. And me and Stan were sitting there by ourselves in, in, the, in, the, in the jug, in the basement of the, of the courthouse, in the jail. And Stan says, hey, wait a minute. And he pulls off his boot and he says, he pulls out a little wedge of hashish about like that. <laughs> I forgot, he says. You know, maybe we had cigarettes, so he empties out a cigarette, and we sit there and smoke this big, right, good stuff. And we had to destroy the evidence, you know, every bit of it. So we're sitting there, just—I mean, hour and a half, two hours pass by, and here come Jones and Smitty back, and here we are, Jonesy, Smitty, man, I'm sorry. We love you, brother. You know, peace. We're all human beings, and you've got such a... And they go, what in the hell's got into these guys? <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that was not uncommon. And that I could laugh about, but there's so much other stuff that makes me cringe still. Nothing I can do about it except cringe and thank God that I found Alcoholics Anonymous. This went on for a long time, from the time I was maybe 14 and 1955, until, as Dick said, 1977. He, he's got a, he's an old-timer. Man, you know, he's got three months on me, I think. September 25th, 1977. I had, uh, it was getting worse and worse, of course. It, it, as I was saying to somebody before, you know, our disease, and, and I mean, look, I don't have to, a lot of people say, this is not a disease, you just can't hold your liquor and all that bullshit. The World Health Organization says it's a disease. The American Medical Association says it's a disease. They all know it is a disease, and it's a chronic disease. That means it does not go away. When you got it, you got it forever. That's just a fact, Jack. And it is a progressive disease. That means it gets worse. And we have seen the evidence of that. And it is a fatal disease, y'all. Uh, it kills you. 95% of the people who suffer from this disease die from it. And yet you will never open a newspaper and see in the obituary section where old Jim Smith died of alcoholism. Ever. You don't see that in the obituaries. Died of suicide, maybe died in a car wreck, died falling off a ladder, maybe it was his liver or his kidney was a brief illness, one of those things, heart attack or stroke or something. But we know, we know, because it's in our family, you know, and 
I was getting there. It is a progressive disease. And I'd been in this movie. It was a Walt Disney. I'll tell you, this, this might be funny, but it was a Civil War movie, and we were playing, of course, Southerners. <laughs> I mean, we, we were rebel soldiers, and the whole movie's about in here. And the last scene they had, I got killed next to the last day. It was the director giving me, he said, you get the death scene, you know, and I got blown up. And uh, But the next day they had this big scene where the Yankees beat us, beat the Southerners, which ultimately is what happened. Although a lot of people don't want to admit that. It's what happened. <laughs> but after we finished shooting, this was up in North Georgia, up near Clayton, Georgia. And uh, so I got through shooting, and there was another day, and I said, well, I'll go by. I'll see you all tomorrow for the last day of shooting, the big battle scene and all that. And I ran out. I don't know if any of y'all are from way up north Georgia. This is up, you know, with uh, Clayton and uh, all up in there. This is uh, some pretty pretty serious uh, moonshine up there. And uh, I hooked up with these guys, and they had this white whiskey, and we started drinking that stuff. And this is the kind where you literally howl at the moon. <laughs> and uh, so I came in the next day, and I've been drinking this moonshine whiskey for like 12, 14 hours, and I show up at the set. And uh, what had happened was is they brought in these reenactors, these Yankee reenactors from Ohio, come in, and they got to win, see? In the, in the movie, they got to, to win. And now they're heading back to their bus, and they're marching along, whist singing, March, marching through Georgia. And it just flew at me. I mean, it's something just, I just went. So I went out and got in front of them. Uh, this whole guy's, I got all these going marching along like this. And I said, You son of a you know, come on, God damn it. I'll fight every damn one. And, and uh, one of, this guy turned and he pointed his bayonet at me. I kicked him right in his rear. And the captain says, let's go, man. And they all run to the bus. They run and get on the bus. And I'm up there banging on the door of the bus. You know, come on out here. Man. I mean, this is insane behavior. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, we can laugh about it now. That was... <laughs> well, that was the beginning of my last drunk. And that went on for about three and a half weeks. And I don't remember most of it was in a blackout. And, uh, or most, you know, just it's not there in my memory. I remember little flashes of things or scenes. I ran this guy at a meeting in D.C. He said, uh, he said, Blackie, you talk about blackouts. He said, I, I worked in a dynamite factory in West Virginia for three years in a blackout. And I, <laughs> a, dynamite, a dynamite But I don't remember much about it. I do remember September 25th of 1977, waking up on the floor of this place, and I'd, I'd made a lot of money on that show, but my, my then wife had, had left during this few weeks and uh, got, in the heck out, got out of Dodge, and I was, uh, I was on this floor under this old wicker couch kind of thing, laying on the floor on Mentel Drive down in Midtown, and the lights had been cut off at some point, and uh, the only thing I, that was on was the phone, thank God. 
because actors always have to have their phone, you know, so that's your priority. But I'm laying there, and I wake up, and I'm seeing, like, all this weird cobwebs and spiders. It's like that Ray Milan movie, The Lost Weekend, you know, the drunk. Only I was up under this couch, and it really was, it wasn't a, it really was spiders and stuff. <laughs> Except, uh, you know, I was having, uh, you know, withdra- terrible withdrawal. I was dying of alcohol poisoning. Acute alcohol poisoning, they call it now. And uh, it's a miracle that I'm alive. And I knew I was dying. And I was overcome with this terror, this absolute terror that I've never felt before. And I hope I never feel it again. It's indescribable. But I knew I was dying. And uh, during those few weeks, I'd gone by to see a buddy of mine I worked at the old Alliance Theater with, old Bob. And I went, I had a a uh, case of Pat's Blue Ribbon or something. I said, Bobby, let's go. He was my, one of my drinking buddies. And he looked at me and said, nah, not today. Nah, he says, I- I'm building a, a toy toy chest for my little girl. And I sh- sort of shelved that. I'd never known him not to go and drink, you know, and there it was. But I went on, and when I woke up on that floor dying, I knew who to call. Somehow or another, there was a look in Bob's eyes when I talked to him that told, sent me a signal that something had changed. And I knew what it was. We didn't talk about it or verbalize it or anything. But I realized something said to me, call Bob. Because I only did one thing different at that point. I knew I was dying, and I said, please, God, help me. And I was almost uh, 37 years ago now, and I haven't had a drink of liquor since. Bob came and got me and took me to the Nabba Club. Some of y'all know that place. Back in those days, they had rooms for people to just to dry out. They don't do much of that anymore because of insurance and laws and all that stuff. But in those days, they just had places for drunks to go in there, and I, I was in there just flopping around for a few days seeing things. And, and there was a guy in there, some of y'all might have known Sammy. Sammy D, he was a great horn player. He was a fabulous trumpet player around Atlanta. And he was in there with me, him and I, for several days. And I ran into uh, Sammy about uh, maybe 12, 14 years later. And I was in the United States Congress. And he was sober and doing great. And I said, Sam. You remember us down at the Nabba Club that time, flopping around with the DTs? He says, yeah, you know, that was the only exercise I got in those days. <laughs> <laughs> I was in such bad shape, uh, I went into the meetings there, and uh, the old rabbi, he says, you get up there and read uh, how it works. And I didn't know anything about it. I was trying to read this and focus. And I uh, was in such terrible physical condition, and I was just uh, a guy. I ran into a guy several years later. He says I was at that meeting. He said I'd just gotten into the program, and I remember when you got up there that day. And he said, My God, if this is what alcoholism does to somebody, I mean, I, I twelfth stepped that guy immediately at my first speech. I looked so bad. I was in such bad shape. He said, Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm. I'm it, it helped him get sober. The Lord have helped me get sober. And they taught me all the stuff that we need to know. And so I realized 
I guess, that what we all kind of realize right now is that we had been bullshitting each other, and we had been bullshitting ourselves, and there was no honesty about our lives at all. And suddenly, here were a bunch of people who would just look you right in the eye and speak right from the heart a truth that we had been in denial about for, for decades, all of our lives. We were suddenly hearing the language, the truth, the language of the heart. It's, a, it's an extraordinary blessing. There was nothing much left to me at that point except the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the strongest thing that anybody could possibly have found. Because I said, please God help me. And there I was, suddenly in a, in a place where everybody not only understood, but they'd been there themselves and they, they related and nobody looked down on me, none of that stuff. It was what, you know, right where you're at, my friend. And suddenly they were talking about my life. And it was amazing to hear people describing my life to me, all those feelings I'd had, all those things I'd been to, been through, all, those, all that denial. I said, hey, you know, that guy over there, you know, he killed three people in a car wreck. That guy over there is the judge that sent him up. That guy over I mean... It didn't matter. We were drunks. And it was okay. Man, it was not only okay, it turned out all those promises, all of those promises have come true for me. Miraculous thing. We're lucky sons of guns, ain't we? Because we're here. We ain't drinking tonight. And this, you, I walked into this room, and I, man, I felt it. There's the laughter. Okay, so a week later, I, I, you know, I'm broke. I don't have anything but a big book. And I get a phone call. Go up North Georgia. They want you to do be in this TV series called Young Daniel Boone. And I'm up there. I'm still shaking, you know, eating chocolate bars like they're telling me to do and reading the big book. And uh, about the third day, I'm up there shooting up on the side of some mountain. This, this assistant director is coming up the hill. He's going, hey, 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 hey. And they're going, what? What's he saying? He gets about halfway up the mountain. <laughs> Finally gets up the top of the hill and says, uh, pull the plug, we've been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it. They pull the plug, everybody, you know, they go back to Hollywood, they give, they give me a check, and there I am, you know, paid the rent, all that stuff. Um, a year later, yeah, I started doing like little, little films, but I'm feeling good now. You know, all of a sudden I, you know, I'm, I'm got all that energy and all that energy that I had tamped down with all that drinking and drugging and and that hard life for so long. I had this energy. I start running around the block. You know, quit smoking, quit smoking dope. A miracle right there. And my lungs start cleaning out. And now I'm running the Peachtree Road Race and all that. I'm not kidding. The old drunk. People get, you know, the guy going by there looks like that old Ben Jones used to drink up at the Stein Club. You know? <laughs> nah, it couldn't be him. Well, it was. So I go to this audition for this thing. And, uh, uh, you know, they said, well, that's a guy. They want you to play a guy who's a garage mechanic. And I was living out in Rutledge, Georgia at the time, and I knew this old boy in, in social circle. And he wore a ball cap, greasy ball cap, and he had uh, tore his sleeves out of his shirt so, you know, wouldn't, his sleeves wouldn't get hung up when he's working. 
and um, always covered with grease. So I said, well, I said, I'll go down there like old Charlie. And I went down there, and uh, uh, they were looking, you know, I, I got cast in this show, and that was in 1978. There was, it's a, a TV show called The Dukes of Hazard. And uh, I'm telling you, yesterday I got a thing from a guy in Spain, you know, sending me pictures of his go-kart that's made up like the General Lee. <laughs> Here in Barcelona, we watch this show all day long, you know. You are el loco couture. <laughs> it's just, they show that thing all over the world. It was like the show took off like a rocket. Now all of a sudden, this is a year before this, I'm laying on the floor in Midtown, having a DTs and dying of alcohol poisoning and the sickest man you ever saw, and people did not want to see me coming up the street. And all of a sudden, I'm on the hottest TV show in the world, and people are coming up, can I get your autograph? Going, you know, it's just weird. It's AA. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. It's Bill and Bob, you know, meeting in Akron, Ohio. It was, it was just the, the hand of God has touched us. And we go through here and we know that that disease has a contract on our lives. That's real. It's there. We take another drink. We might as well put a gun. It's, it's a killer thing. And so all we got to do, they tell us, is Get through, I mean, a day at a time, if it has to be an hour at a time, a minute at a time, a second at a time. As long as you don't drink. Don't take a drink even if your ass falls off. Do not drink. And all these things will happen. All these good things will happen. Do these steps. Very simple. I mean, it's not easy necessarily, but it's simple. Do this step. And, and, and do those steps. And part of doing those steps is to share that with each other and to help other alcoholics. And you will live a life that is happy and joyous and free. I did that show for years, and I show it all over the world, and, and uh, good things. Good things were happening. I got through that, so what am I going to do now? 1986. And I was the chairman of the state film board, you know, trying to get films to come into the state, and... Uh, and a guy comes up to me I'm at a swearing-in thing for the film commission, and he says, Hey, you ever think about running for Congress? And I said, uh, No. I said, no, There's something you need to understand. I said, uh, I've got more bones in my closet than the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, I said, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been thrown in jail 15 or 20 times. I've been married four times, five now. I said, and I've been, you know, uh, just a, a holy terror. And I, I don't think I can probably be the guy you're looking for. He said, well, now you don't know. You don't know. He said, think about it. He said, that's a good story. He said, you're, you're sober. They, most of them congressmen aren't. <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, uh, for some reason, I prayed. We prayed, and it seemed like the right thing to do. You know, that thing that just said, "Yeah, I do this. This is the right thing to do." And uh, I, obviously, if they were scraping the bottom of the barrel to come to me and look for somebody to run for Congress, because 
none of the traditional you know, elected officials wanted to take this race on because the incumbent had, uh, had beaten a five-term congressman and he was supposed to be the next big thing, you know, you know, senatorial material, uh, vice president, who knows? He was just the, the, the guy. And uh, it was a fellow named Pat Swindle. Y'all might know him. <laughs> Pat's a good guy. That's an unfortunate name for a, a congressman. Huh? <laughs> Not a bad guy, but, you know, I mean, so everybody said, oh, that's a joke. Well, it turned out that I really had a knack for this stuff. But I'd been involved in politics in the 60s. Everybody was in those days, you know. And in the civil rights movement, I had seen how a small group of people could make a real big change for the right stuff. And uh, so I jumped in there and discovered that a whole lot of other people felt like I did. And, they're, you know, our system is very imperfect. We were talking about that before the meeting, how, you know, we only got two choices. And sometimes we don't think they're the best choices. We want another choice. But no, we got two choices. Uh, and, but if nobody challenges the incumbent, you don't have but one choice. If nobody's going to make the race, if nobody's going to, you know, get in there and, and speak, you know, the, make the case for the alternative, then you might as well not have an election. You might as well not have a democracy. So I said, I'll do this. And, you know, on a shoestring, I nearly won. I, it's a long story. Uh, it, it, I, so I, I just said, well, you know, I almost won this thing. If I'd have had a couple more weeks or a little bit more money, a little bit more support, I, I would have won. So I kept running. It's a two years, you know, it's a two-year term. I'm going to go after that guy again. And I was help, really helped by the fact that uh, a few months before the next election, he was indicted. <laughs> That's always a good thing for if you're running against somebody. Yeah, and, and, and we videotaped in a, in a sting operation about laundering drug money. I mean, that's, that's an asset if you're running against somebody. So, you know, I didn't say nothing after that. I didn't have to say anything about that. You know, that's all taken care of. I just went on saying, you know, why I thought I could be a good congressman and all that stuff. And we had this debate. I do have to tell this part because, uh, you know, I just think this stuff up, and that, that's a real talent. <laughs> if I say something myself, well, he says, Ben Jones is dishonest. He says he never, you know, he's been so wrong. We have evidence here that in 1963 he did such and such. Everybody knows that. Pat, everybody knows me, knows that. I said, uh, uh, and you calling me dishonest is like being called ugly by a possum. <laughs> and that, that was on television, you see, and that sort of ended that whole discussion right there. <laughs> and I won in a landslide. I just, I'm not making this up. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Now remember, the guy on the floor, the guy we all know, the guy we all were, all of a sudden I'm in this situation. I'm going to Congress. And I'm thinking, man, you know, from that shack where I grew up, you know, through all I'd been through and all those jails and all those fights and all that terror and all that awful stuff, here I was being honored by, you know, several hundred thousand people who supported me 
for a very important job. Um, so I get up to, to Washington, and somebody told me there's a meeting in the Capitol of the United States called the Yays and Nays meeting. I said, you ought to go over there. Told me, met on a Monday. And so the Capitol, United States Capitol is a huge building. I, I, our office was across the street there. But I went over to the Capitol building, walked in, and I said, I don't know where this meeting is. And somebody said, well, it's upstairs. And some huge, vast, long hallways. And all of a sudden, I hear something. And what I'm hearing is this. What I, what I heard in here a while ago. <laughs> People just laughing. And, I, and that kind of the laugh that we have, you know, as survivors. And I just followed the sound of laughter and went to that meeting. And uh, I served uh, two terms in Congress and then was redistricted and went through a whole lot of more stuff, a lot of turmoil, the stuff that we all go through. Our lives go through that. But I'm telling you, the, the, the worst day of the sober life is better than the best day of the drunk life. You know, we all know that. And I don't have to worry about how this stuff is going to turn out. I mean, it's going to turn out the way it turns out. You know, the way that the higher power, and let me say something about this. That first meeting at the Nava Club, I was in there. I kept hearing him talk about somebody named Howard Powell. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess I just turned everything over to Howard Powell, and I asked old Howard Powell. <laughs> so Howard Powell's been real good to me. And <laughs> people say, you know, uh, want to argue with me about whether or not there's a God. I'm thinking, well, I didn't do anything. All I did was not do something. I prayed to God to help me, and as God as you understand it. Not as I understand him or as Billy Graham understands him or Pat Robertson or the Pope or whoever, as we individually relate to whatever it was that created us. And I said, well, I just looked out outside the Navajo Club. I've got to have a higher power, huh? Oh, well, there's a tree out there. There's all this tree. I didn't put that tree there. That tree was there before I was born. There's an old oak tree, a couple hundred years old maybe. Whatever put the tree there, help me. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but I know it's a loving God and a caring God because of the way I've been nourished and nurtured and taken care of. Uh, is my, uh, there's always a guy at AA meetings. I bet there's somebody in here. There's always an old guy over there named Stumpy. Or, uh, <laughs> you know the guy I'm talking about? Shorty, <laughs> you know, up, mid, up in the country, yeah. that guy, old Speedy, old Speedy's at our meeting, he says, hey, about all this big mang stuff, well, who, 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 who do you think pulled the damn trigger? <laughs> great, there's great wisdom in all that stuff, you know. The other day, and we, y'all have probably heard this one, but it's, it's like sometimes it's like being at this. You know, these, these great sacred monks and Buddhists and all this stuff and the high greatest wisdom, the spiritual, eternal spiritual gurus. You can hear it all at AA meeting. He said, well, the problem is, is that uh, we want to be judged by our intentions rather than our actions. And I went, damn, how did he know that about me? Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that about myself, but it's true, ain't it? We we expect you know, well we we you know, 
in our head, we're really okay. It's on. But he was absolutely right. The wisdom I've learned here, the joy that I've had here is absolutely, it's not just that I'm sober. It's that I'm alive and happy. And I know I've been through a lot of stuff. More stuff will happen. Hell, just in the last few years, I've had two major back operations, uh, another a hip replacement, and I've had four total knee replacements in the same knee. That's the record, I think. <laughs> We're talking. I get out at the airport now. All the beep, 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 so much metal. I got more metal in me than a 1937 Studebaker truck. <laughs> I'm around, so you know. But but I got this job where the the cooter thing, by the way, doesn't go away. It's a permanent nickname. And I run into little kids, two and three years old. And they say, oh, he just loves you. You know, they, He watches the Dukes of Hazard every night, and we all get together. And I hear people saying to me, I used to watch this show with my parents, and now I watch it with my kids. You know, it, uh, and, and the fact that I could, you know, boy, I get the picture taken with old Cooter now. When I was a kid, if I could have, I mean, you think, I, when I was a kid, it was Gene Autry. You know, and of course, other Roy Rogers, all those old cowboys, you know. That's what our show was like to these generations of kids. The good guys always won. Nobody got hurt. Nobody bled. Nobody cussed. Not a lot of sexual stuff going on. And the good, they were, the good guys won. They always made the right moral choice. They did the right thing. That's what they've been taught by their Uncle Jesse. And, and there was a, you know, the rancher's daughter, whatever. There was, there was a, Daisy Duke. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> the best legs in the history of legs. Guys that come up in Congress and say, hey, you ever, uh, you ever, uh, you know, a Daisy, huh? Yeah. A, I can neither confirm nor deny that report. You know, that's what you say in Washington, right? Uh, So it had all those elements in the action, the slapstick comedy. That stuff doesn't get old. It's good stuff. Um, so that that's a joy to have had that. It was a joy to have served in Congress. Although now I tell people I'm a recovering congressman. I'm telling you. Uh, when I got there, they said, oh, it's terrible now. It used to be great when I got here 30 years ago. Now they said, when you were here, it was great. But now it's just awful, you know. Um, well, we've got something separate from all of that. That's just stuff. You know, it's like a guy asked me about, he says, well, I believe in science. I said, I believe in science, too. You know, that's the way, you, that's the way we measure things. He goes, what? I said, yeah, that's just measuring stuff, figuring out all that, how to measure things. Stopped him for a minute there. You know, I think, I think God created science for good reason. Or who you know? I mean, all these things that were led to in our minds. But we're just little animals, and we're not long here on this earth. And the greatest gift that I've ever been given is the gift of this fellowship. And I want to thank every one of you, and everybody that put the Howl Club. What a great thing! Look at it. I mean, look at this play. All these people were looking out for you. Talked to somebody with you know 30, 40 years. Uh, Talked to somebody with six days. You know, it's all the same. We're sober. We're here right now in this fellowship because of the genius, the, 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 the gift that 
Well, before Carl Jung, I don't know if you all know the story or not about the great shrink Carl Jung, uh, the Austrian uh, contemporary of Freud and all that, but Jung was different. He was a very spiritual cat. And he had a guy named, a patient named Roland Hazard, who was this rich kid from uh, Rhode Island, I think, and we couldn't get sober. And the family, you know, he had all his money and they wanted to turn the business over to him. But Roland was a, what they call in a dipsomaniac. <laughs> couldn't get enough to drink. And so he went to Jung, the most expensive shrink in the world. And Jung says, uh, well, Roland, we got you going here a little bit. You seem to be straightened up. You've been here for a year now. You need to go out there in the world. And, and I said, uh, Sandy Beach tells the story. I said, well, Roland got as far as Paris and somebody asked him the wrong question. He said, would you like a drink? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, give me a drink. I sure would, yeah. So, you know, then he's back and, and with Young a few months later, totally crushed, totally just, you know, just. And, and uh, he said, what are we going to do? And, and Dr. Young said to Roland, said, the only thing that will save you is a spiritual experience. I can't help you. This is the greatest shrink in the world, right? I can't help you. You know, it's between you and your God. Well, for Roland, Roland took that to heart. I mean, it was either that or, you know, here was his choices. Either, either find this path, the spiritual thing, make that connection somehow, or die a miserable death. So he got sober, and he went back, and he got in the uh, Oxford clubs back in those days, and he met a guy named Abby Thatcher. And Abby Thatcher went to see a guy named uh, Bill Wilson and talked to him at his, at his kitchen table and told Bill about the spiritual experience he'd had. Eddie later slipped, but he 12-stepped. The 12 steps didn't exist then. Bill Wilson. It was from Eddie that he learned that. Well, in 19, I think about 1962, a few months before Dr. Jung died, Bill Wilson says, you know, Dr. Jung had a lot to do with this. If you look back, I hear where he talked to Roland. Roland talked to Abby. Abby talked to me. I talked to Bob. Well, and here we are. He says, I don't know if anybody's ever thanked him. So he wrote Dr. Jung, and he said, uh, I don't know if you remember this or not, a, you know, a patient you have, but this is what happened. He said, now we've got 100,000 people. This is back in the 60s. 100,000 people sober. There are groups all in 20 countries around the world. He says, it's a wonderful thing, and we want to thank you for that. And Dr. Jung wrote him back. He says, I do remember Roland, and that's a wonderful thing to find out. And he said, I have always believed, Jung said this, that, that alcoholics have a, have a unique desire to find God. That's why, you know, it was something in that thing when we took that first drink, things were different. But it turned out that that was a false God. And, and as as Jung described it to Bill Wilson, he said, he used the Latin phrase, um, spiritus contra spiritum. That the spirits, the great spirits, the spiritual life overcomes what we call spirits. That drinking, that, you know, they called it spirits for a reason, right? He said that it overcame that. And, and Jung died a few months later. So it's a great story, and that this, 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 the spirit I feel in this room is a million times stronger, ineffably further, wider, deeper, longer, more meaningful, more lasting than all that hooch I drank for all those years.
and it's because all of us are here together sharing this. And I thank you for letting me share with you. Thank you.